Welcome to EmergencyMedicineCases.com. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. On this month's episode number 26 on emergency causes of low back pain, we have with us Dr. Brian Steinhardt and Dr. Walter Himmel. Dr. Steinhardt is an emergency physician at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. He's certified in emergency medicine by the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada, as well as the American Board of Emergency Medicine. He's been a delegate for the Heart and Stroke Foundation of Canada, as well as the American Heart Association. Dr. Walter Himmel is an emergency physician at North York General Hospital, Scarborough General Hospital, and Toronto East General Hospitals. He's a world-renowned speaker in emergency medicine and a recipient of multiple teaching awards. So without further ado, let's get into talking about low back pain. When we pick up a chart in the ED and see the chief complaint is low back pain, most of us have a similar reaction. Not another lumbosacral sprain or not another drug seeker, or not another patient I can't do anything for. Sometimes it seems like a big drag. That's because most often the cause of the low back pain is benign, and many of us feel that we aren't equipped with the tools we need to help these patients in any significant way. And this is backed up by the literature. Upwards of 90% of low back pain presentations in the ED turn out to be benign etiologies like lumbosacral sprain, and ED docs have been shown to be poor at providing good education and evidence-based treatments for lumbosacral sprain, even though there's a huge, often long-term morbidity associated with it. For whatever reason, there's a tendency for us to be nonchalant and complacent about low back pain, which is odd. Because if you compare this 90% comprising benign causes of back pain to chest pain, it's not very different. Only about 10 to 15% of chest pain presentations to the ED turn out to be serious causes. Yet when it comes to patients presenting in the ED with chest pain, we're keenly alert about ruling out MI, PE, aortic dissection, etc. Back pain is the most common MSK complaint that results in visits to the ED. Now I know what some of you are thinking. Benign causes of back pain are for the primary care doctor to sort out, not us in the ED. But increasingly, the ED is used for primary care for many patients, whether we like it or not. So we need to be able to manage these patients with adequate skill, knowledge, and finesse. And what about the other 10% of back pain etiologies that aren't so benign? There are several very important life or limb-threatening diagnoses that we must consider in every patient who presents with low back pain, from cauda equina syndrome to leaking AAA, that will be giving you all the key pearls about in this episode. Some of these serious causes of low back pain are easy to miss, and more often than not, are only diagnosed on the second or third or even fourth visits to the ED. So we need to approach all of these low back pain patients with a high degree of scrutiny. With the eagle eye insights of two of my biggest mentors, Dr. Brian Steinhardt and Dr. Walter Himmel, the docs who, when no one in the department can figure out what's going on with a patient, they turn to them for help. We'll run through a few typical cases of some of the most serious causes of low back pain to help equip you with the tools you need to make a rapid diagnosis and save these patients from permanent disability or death. So welcome, Brian. Thank you. And welcome, Walter. Thank you. All right, let's jump right into a first case. The first case is that of a 63-year-old woman who arrives in your ED with a chief complaint of abdominal pain. This is her third visit for the same complaint in 10 days. Her illness started about two weeks ago when she developed back pain, and then a few days ago developed lower abdominal pain, 
bilateral leg weakness, and difficulty urinating. She complains that she's been sweating a lot and getting flushed in the face. On her previous visit, she was discharged after a fully in and out. On further questioning about her back pain, she described a mostly right lower back pain with burning pain to both thighs that couldn't be relieved by acetaminophen or any change in position. She's unable to sleep adequately because of her pain. Her past medical history includes diabetes and a 40-pack year smoking history. She denies alcohol or drug abuse. On exam, she appears to be in significant amount of pain, writhing in the stretcher. Her vitals include a blood pressure of 173 over 103, a heart rate of 96, a respiratory rate of 20, a temp of 37.2, and an O2 set of 99% on room air. She's tender all over the lower and mid-back and right paraspinal muscles. Her abdominal exam reveals suprapubic fullness, no mass, and no peritoneal signs. She has brisk reflexes in the lower extremities with proximal right leg weakness and decreased sensation in the right leg. A digital rectal exam was not done. So, Dr. Himmel, let's just start off with what, what are your general thoughts on this case so far? Intense fear. This, this patient's got every red flag I can possibly imagine for serious disease. So I'll, I'll take a general, make a few general comments before specifics. Number one, she's diabetic. And uh, diabetes is definitely a red flag for infection serious disease. This woman is a heavy smoker. Big risk factor, of course, for lung cancer and multiple other cancers, including oral cancers, bladder cancers, and a big risk factor for atherosclerosis. This person is 63 years of age. And we know that people over 60 or 60, 65 have about a 5% risk of triple A's. So that's another risk factor. It's her third visit. There's two approaches to patients who come back for second and third and fourth visits. The first approach is, this is a frequent flyer, we got to get rid of them. That's a dangerous approach. The other approach is, third visit, this person needs extra diagnostic precision. And in my experience, that's the best approach to take. She's had back pain, and now she's complaining of abdominal pain and leg weakness. That makes me very frightened. Of course, there's leg weakness, and there's leg weakness, and there's leg weakness. She's had difficulty urinating, another potential problem for neurological issues. Now, the problem with difficulty urinating is that complaint is very nonspecific. It can be an infection. It can be a neurological problem. It can simply be a nonspecific symptom of pain. She's been sweating a lot. I'm not sure what that means. Anxiety, fear, fatigue, infection, SIRS, huge differential diagnosis. And flushing the face, a similar problem, even including pheochromocytoma. So right off the bat, I'm absolutely worried, and I'd move right on to the uh, physical next. Her tenderness in the lower back is a concern, but not that specific. We know that people with musculoskeletal strength can have lower back pain, and tenderness, you know, people with discogenic problems can have tenderness in the lower back, and people with serious problems and visceral problems can have lower back tenderness, not that specific. She's got fullness in the suprapubic area of her body. What does that mean? Bowel obstruction? Possibly. Full bladder? Much more likely. That's got to be looked at. Her brisk reflexes are a concern. Now, my experience is getting reflexes in people over 60 is often tough. I can usually get knee jerks. Ankle jerks are often difficult to obtain. Wrist reflexes are unusual in people over 60. But always make a worry about an upper motor neuron lesion. There's a comment about the weakness of the proximal right leg. I find strength 
in people with back pain, lying on a bed is hard to assess. Because my question is, are we dealing with the giveaway weakness of pain? Are we dealing with life effort because of pain? Or are we dealing with true neurological, neuromuscular weakness? Uh, nonetheless, I'm going to point out you should never uh, ignore weakness. That's a potential sign for serious disease. And decreased sensation in the right leg, very tough to uh, assess. So you have to look at the entire picture overall. Great. So we'll, we'll get onto the specifics of the physical exam a li- little bit later in the episode. Let's continue with the case. There's a lot of unanswered questions here and a lot of areas that we need to address. So a Foley was again inserted and some blood and urine was sent as well as an x-ray of the lumbar spine in this case. The serum white blood cell count came back at 28 and the urinalysis was positive for leukes and nitrates. The x-ray was read as normal by the ED doc and later the radiology report read end plate erosion at L3 and L4. Dr. Steinhardt, with these results, now that you have a white count of 28, positive leukes in the urine, and our 63-year-old woman with right leg weakness, what would your next moves be? What, what are your thoughts on this case? Let me start off by saying the white count of 28 is unusual and is most concerning for infection. The fact that we see leukes in the urinalysis is interesting, but I wouldn't automatically label this patient as pyelonephritis and obviously there are other features that do not support it. I'm surprised that uh, the ED doc missed end plate erosion. I think uh, when it occurs it's very clear it's a moth-eaten lytic kind of punched out lesions at the end plates of the vertebra not like degenerative changes not like sclerosis and uh, once you see it you never forget it. So when you see this x-ray, it pretty well confirms that there's a spinal de novo problem uh, extending into from the bone into the spinal canal causing these symptoms, and you have to move very quickly. So first and foremost, this patient has pain. Treat the pain, right, very adequately. And you may want to go back and reassess the patient after you gave adequate analgesia in a quick fashion to uh, corroborate and consolidate your physical findings that there's often this overlay of uh, pain and anxiety and adequate analgesia cuts through all that and uh, validates your physical exam. I would then start antibiotics because this is uh, an infection. I'm sure you're quite sure of it at this point. This case involves impingement of the spinal cord. You would get your spinal consultant on board early, and then you would want to move on quickly to definitive imaging beyond the simple x-ray. So this patient did go on to have an MRI, and the MRI showed spinal epidural abscess. The patient was given ceftazidime and vancomycin IV and went to the operating room for drainage of the abscess. So Dr. Himmel, as this case illustrates, spinal epidural abscess is often missed on the first visit of the emergency department. Why is this such a difficult diagnosis early on in the disease? Why is it missed so often? Like most diseases, like most human experiences, they have a starting point, they develop, and then they vanish or you die. So every disease has a starting point at some point. If you're lucky enough to be there at the starting point, the symptoms will be very, very few and very, very non-specific. So you've got to be at the right place at the wrong time and avoid the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, 
Epidural abscesses traditionally have been described as having four phases. And many infections are indeed have four phases. You've got the initial non-specific phase, malaise, not feeling well, and possibly back pain. That's early on. That's so non-specific that it would be easy to miss. Uh, next, you've got a phase where you get early neurological symptoms, like uh, neuropathic symptoms and pain. Then you get the phase where you get paralysis and bladder dysfunction, and ultimately uh, you become totally paralyzed, septic, and you may die. So if you see someone in the second, third, or fourth visit, and you're lucky enough to see a full-fledged picture, no problem anybody who diagnosed the disease. These diseases are missed early on because symptoms are very, very subtle. Now there's a triad that's described with epidural abscess. The triad includes back pain, fever, and neurological deficits. But how often does this triad occur in its full-blown picture? Perhaps one case in six. And even that triad has different degrees of manifestation. Fever is only present in approximately 50% of people with epidural abscesses. How about a neurodeficit? Well, neurodeficits appear usually in the second, third, or fourth visits. And furthermore, when they first appear, they're extremely subtle. The patient may complain of numbness or weakness that's so minor it's difficult to assess. So I say the disease progresses over one or two or three or four days. The early pictures are very subtle. The full-fledged presentation is actually rare on the first or second visit. So for all those reasons, it's easy to miss. There's another reason it's easy to miss. It's not thought of. This disease occurs with an instance of about 1 to 2 per 10,000 patients who get admitted to the hospital. That is rare, rare, rare. So how do you deal with that issue? Number one, there's five serious causes of back pain. Fractures, cancer, infection, AAA, Catoquina syndrome. There's five serious causes of back pain. And I think about those every time I see a patient with back pain. And one of the causes is infection. What makes you think of infection? Risk factors. Dr. Steinhardt, can you uh, tell us in your experience and basically what the literature says about risk factors for osteomyelitis and spinal epidural abscess, discitis, infections of the spine? What are the, what are the risk factors we should be on the lookout for that might help us clue in and maybe diagnose this in those early stages when it might be more difficult? So we're talking infection and then so risk factors automatically we look at people with immune deficiencies. First and foremost, as Dr. Himmel said, diabetes, diabetes, diabetes. Rampant increasing prevalence, some better treatment, but still, if you've got the disease, you've got immunocompromised more or less. And then other immunocompromised patients, in my catchment area, it's HIV. Anyone who's post-op spinal, not just post-op, but post-spinal procedure, and that includes epidural blocks for previous back pain, spinal anesthesia, anyone with an indwelling catheter. So we're seeing so much more of this with uh, patients surviving their initial cancers or infections, but are ambulatory with indwelling devices, be the catheters, ICDs, et cetera, et cetera. And these are nidises for infection. And they may have an obvious infection elsewhere, Typically, lung and skin and GU can, le- can seed the spinal column. And again, in my catchment area, it's the drug user, the intravenous drug use with a, quote, dirty needle. Uh, these patients are 
most often immunocompromised to begin with, with other concomitant diseases, and these people are huge red flags for this disease. And as you alluded to before, people who come back for the second and third and fourth time with this increasing problem, they, they are giving us the chance to get it right, as opposed to uh, shrugging them off and labeling them frequent flyers. Those are the main risk factors. The caveat is, quote, normal people, even athletes who live squeaky clean lives and are, you know, super jocks can get this disease de novo. Let's say you've got a patient with low back pain who's an IV drug user and has some vague sensory deficit in the legs and you're thinking about the possibility of spinal infection. How would you begin to work these patients up? Some people suggest with blood work, I don't wait for the results of the white count, which can be elevated or not, or the ESRCRP. I'll tell you right away, I never, ever personally wait for an ESR. An ESR is erythrocyte sedimentation rate. So some aliquot of blood is placed in this tube and they wait over one hour to see how far down this graded tube the uh, red cells precipitate and you get a number at the end. And it's a one hour test. At our hospital, it takes at least three hours. And all the evidence such as it is says CRP will rise quicker uh, than ESR. There are confounders with ESR, less so with CRP. And CRP, I get back in 45 minutes, not three hours. So I do draw these tests. Consultants like to look at these tests. They are fallible in every way. What Dr. Steinhardt is referring to here is the post-op patient who's just had a spinal procedure done. Often these patients will have an elevated CRP uh, up to about five days, one week post-op. Some experts suggest that if the CRP is in the extremes, really high or really low, that that can help you decide whether or not to go ahead with an MRI in a patient that you're unsure about. Similarly, patients with comorbid inflammatory disease will likely have an elevated CRP and ESR to begin with, and so the same holds true for them. Dr. Himmel is now going to tell us what he thinks about ESR and CRP in the context of patient who you suspect spinal epidural abscess in. I think the ESR and CRP is helpful, actually. I think if you don't want to get an MRI, the ESR and CRP is quite helpful. Many patients will have back pain. Many patients will have subtle complaints. The physical findings may be marginal or very questionable. So you mean so if, like if, patient, if, you have a, if you have a low pretest probability? If I have a low suspicion, yeah. if I have a suspicion that's moderate only because this patient is a disaster waiting to happen, but I don't want to get an MRI because I, in my gut, think this person probably does not have a epidural abscess or a spinal abscess, I will ask for ESR to CRP. Now, we know from a couple of articles, one was done by a fellow called Theodore Chan in California, that in those patients' epidural abscesses, 98% had an ESR more than 20. Is that helpful? Not really. But we know the average ESR of the patient epidural abscesses was 50 or 60. That's very helpful. I also know if I want to convince a radiologist to get an MRI, and you know, when you suspect epidural abscess, you've got to get an MRI of the entire spine, neck, thorax, lumbosacral area. 
You never get, in this context, MRI of the thorax or MRI of the lumbar spine. It's the entire spine because you can get skip lesions and you can get very widespreading abscesses. So I look at those tests to convince the radiologist I need an MRI. I'll get these tests to convince a neurosurgeon I need a consultation. Because the fact of it is, many neurosurgeons, a lot of radiologists, doubt what I say. And I can understand why. We know from multiple referrals and multiple MRIs that the positive rate is often low. And they're so accustomed to getting negative tests, they have to be convinced. So we'll get these tests done. However, the history and physical always dominates. If my history and physical, my gut tells me I'm worried about epidural abscess in this person, if their pain is worse than it's been before, if it's more persistent than it's been before, if their agony is worse than before, let's talk to the person and say, is this pain different from usual? If their weakness is worse than it's been beforehand, I make the decision independent of ESR and CRP. But these tests, in my opinion, are quite helpful when you don't want to investigate and when you want to reassure yourself your clinical suspicion is reliable. If you, on the other hand, think the risk of these diseases are high, then the tests are much less valuable. So low pretest probability, you're thinking it's probably not a spinal infection. That's a place where you might want to really do the ESR or CRP because if it's less than 20, then that's good enough to rule out the disease. If it's very high, then that might tip you towards, yes, I need an MRI. So that's kind of where the decision point is with that. It's kind of like a, a D-dimer that we use for thromboembolic disease and that there's no point in doing one in a patient who has a very high pretest probability. You're just going to go straight to the definitive test. And really, if D-dimer is useful, it's really only useful in those, those low pretest probability patients. So uh, I think that's correct. Let me give you an example. Of a week ago, I saw a patient. This person came in complaining of neck pain and back pain. He was 55 years of age, a mechanical engineer. Here's the story. He had ankylosing spondylitis. And he told me his entire spine was fused from his neck down to his uh, S1. He requires special chairs to sit on so he worked properly. He told me he normally had virtually zero spinal movement. And he was on an anti-tumor necrosis factor agent every three or four weeks to control his symptoms. So I said, so why did you come in? Well, he said, I've had agonizing neck pain for about 24 hours. Don't you always have neck pain? Yes, but this is more agonizing than usual. I examined this chap. He stood up with great difficulty. His neck flexion was about zero. His neck rotation was about zero. Is this worse than usual? He says, no, that's how much my neck usually moves, about zero. Well, he looked okay. He didn't have a fever. His reflexes were fine. I said, you know, he's on immunosuppressive drugs, high risk situation, maybe he's massive symptoms. His neck pain's worse than usual, but I just had the sense this was not a serious infection, which is ankylosing spondylitis. On this guy, I got an ESR and a CRP. And they could argue, unreliable, it's immunosuppressed, ESR may be inappropriately low. But I genuinely felt this person would just have an exacerbation of his AS. I genuinely believe he did not have an abscess. I genuinely didn't want to get any further imaging at all. His ESR came back around 10. It made me more comfortable in letting him go home with lots of good advice. Great example. I like that. So just to remind the listeners that a normal ESR is not just what your lab cutoff says. It actually ESR changes with age. And so a normal ESR is age plus 10 divided by 2. So if you take my age and you add 10 and divide by 2, then my ESR cutoff would be 25. But an 80-year-old, 
their ESR cutoff would be 45. Some of us work in centers where it's very difficult to get an urgent MRI. What about CT? If you can't get an urgent MRI, is a CT useful in working up patients with suspected uh, epidural abscess? When it comes to the bone and the cortical structure of bone, a CT scan is absolutely excellent. Tragically, the CT scan will tell you very little about the spinal cord and the spinal nerves and the epidural space, both anterior and post epidural space. So for bone alone, it's fine. If you're worrying about cancer in bone alone, I think it's helpful. When you're worried about the spinal cord, the spinal nerves, an epidural infection, and where is the epidural infection located? It's located in the epidural space. Now, where is that located? It's located between the dura and the spine. That's the anti-epidural space. Or between the pedicle, the lamina, and the posterior dura. These are soft tissue structures. The CT scan is notoriously inadequate for soft tissue structures. When you're worried about epidural abscess, you're looking at the vertebra for osteomyelitis, you're looking at the pedicles and lamina for sign of infection, you're looking at the spinal cord and all the epidural space, tons of soft tissue. The CT scan is completely inadequate for soft tissue. Basically, you've got to get a MRI. The MRI picks up edema, picks up abnormality of the spinal nerves, uh, you can look at the amount of fat and tissue, and of course, the radiologist has to know exactly what you're looking at because there's multiple, multiple algorithms for the MRI. That, that's the absolute most important test to get. Now, I've certainly seen cases where a physician has got a CT worrying about an epidural abscess or catechina syndrome. Don't be fooled. If you get the CT scan and it's normal, virtually normal, absolutely ignore it. I've also been in a situation where a colleague of mine may say to me, well, I couldn't get the MRI, but the radiologist agreed to a CT scan. My advice would be, forget the CT scan, you're wasting time. If you're worried about neurological dysfunction, secondary to epidural abscess, or malignancy, or a catastrophe, or catechina syndrome, there's only one effective test in North America and the world today, and that's MRI. Realizing full well sensitivity is still not 100%. We're looking at sensitivities quoted between 90, 95, or 98%. So the clinical history and physical dominates. The physician's opinion dominates the MRI confirms. The CT scan can be either useless or misleading in this context. Approximately a third of epidural abscesses are secondary to discitis, infection of your disc, or vertebral osteomyelitis. That's only about a third. And that will cause an abscess in the anterior epidural space. Probably close to two-thirds are due to hematogenous spread of unknown causes. So if you're thinking about an infection, remember there's five serious causes of back pain, think about an infection, you're not gonna order a CT scan. I get the MRI. So to put it in another way, one of the major pitfalls in the diagnosis of spinal infection is if you suspect osteomyelitis, you decide to do a CT and not an MRI, the CT shows osteomyelitis and you just stop there and give the patients antibiotics. That patient might have a spinal epidural abscess brewing, which requires neurosurgery rather than internal medicine admitting them for osteomyelitis. Dr. Steinhardt, can you outline for us the treatment of spinal epidural abscess? You work at a tertiary care center uh, with neurosurgeons where they deal with this. Can you outline for us the, the treatment for spinal epidural abscess and why it's important for ED docs to get the ball rolling in a timely manner? 
this can propagate very quickly to paraparesis and not everyone of the same stature has the same spinal cord diameters. The diameter varies uh, tremendously amongst people of the same stature. So if you're cursed with a narrow spinal canal from birth, it takes much less to cause complete obstruction and, and, and therefore paralysis. So this can happen very, very quickly. And so you want to get the definitive imaging on board to get any surgical decompression as quickly as possible. So that said, and this is an infection, you want to get appropriate antibiotics on board ASAP. And so as soon as you think of this like meningitis, you get the antibiotics on board and worry about definitively diagnosing it later. If you don't have a spinal consultation readily at hand, you want to get in touch with them earlier rather than later because um, any deficits that are present are unlikely to recover even with timely surgery. You want to avoid the paraplegic state. Mm-hmm. And in terms of which antibiotics, can you just go through what the usual bugs are for spinal epidural abscess and what you'd cover with them with? So in my center, number one is Staph aureus, number two is Staph aureus, number three is Staph aureus, and then we worry about other bugs like strep, and then if there's a nidus for a primary infection, the patient has a roaring cellulitis to begin with, or pneumonia, or in the case presented, uh, pyelonephritis, uh, then whatever you think is specific for the primary infection, get that on board ASAP. So you're giving two or three antibiotics, right? And some, some would argue, well, vancomycin will handle MRSA. It's not the best drug for methicillin-sensitive staph aureus. The best drug there is probably ANSEF. So some would argue vancomycin and possibly ANSEF and something for the gram-negatives, of course. And you're usually talking about cetazidine or ceftriaxone or amonobactam. So in terms of antibiotics for suspected or confirmed spinal infection, you want to cover Staph aureus first and foremost. So not only do you want to cover for MRSA, you also want to cover for methicillin-sensitive Staph aureus. So you want to give vancomycin plus ANSEF. And in addition, you want to cover for the gram negatives, and so you'd consider in that case ceftazidine or ceftriaxone or imonobactam. Dr. Steinhardt's now going to give us a few more pearls about cases that he's seen of spinal epidural abscess. We have tragically seen repeatedly cases of abdominal pain predominating over back pain where the uh, clinician has focused on the abdo pain and not the back problem and have have gone on to abdominal CT scanning, which shows benign abdomen in the patient sent home only to come back paraplegic. And when we go back and review the initial CT abdo, there, there is the lesion in the spinal column, but no one's looking for it because of the clinical history. So I don't want to strike the fear of medical legal liability and and, uh, horrible outcomes for for every abdominal pain that presents, but uh, I think uh, we've learned to respect abdo pain with back pain. And if you do go on to abdominal imaging, make sure you look at, like any other imaging, look at the whole picture, not just 
where you're concerned. Before we move on to our general approach to back pain and some of the other causes of back pain, Dr. Himley, you had another case of uh, spinal infection that you wanted to tell us about? I had an amazing case. Uh, I saw a fellow who came from a regular basis. He was an ex-jockey. He told me he had multiple fractures of a cervical, thoracic, and lumbar spine. He had a wheelchair that he used to ride with the hospital. He was a known uh, abuser of Dilaudid, Percocet, intravenous heroin, and his girlfriend, while well, not an ex-jockey, had all his other habits. So I saw him. I was the third doctor to see him in three days. And he came back the third time saying he had agonizing neck pain and back pain. He had a CT scan the previous day of his neck. And I said, why would you come back today? Well, then he began swearing and shouting. My first thought was, hmm, third visit. I don't want to screw this one up. Why did you come back today? Well, his pain was worse. I said, how much worse? It was a lot worse. Examining him was unbelievably difficult because he was uncooperative. I had the sense he had weakness of his right hip and maybe dorsiflexion of his right arm. Are these limbs usually weak? Yes. Are they any different than usual? I'm weaker than usual. Doing a rectal was virtually impossible. I couldn't get him to onto his side. He was uncooperative, screaming and yelling. But I said, you know, this guy is high risk. He's an IV drug abuser. It's his third visit. His CT scan was essentially normal. It showed advanced disc disease, previous fractures. I said, you've got to have an MRI. I make sure you haven't got an abscess. At that point, I didn't get any blood work done. The patient wanted to leave. Mm-hmm. I said, you're not leaving. You're not going to get paralyzed on my shift. Forget it. So I phoned the radiologist and I need an MRI in this guy's entire spine. It's his third visit. The radiologist said, well, he had a CT that was normal yesterday. I said, I'm worried about an epidural abscess. I was able to get an MRI with vigorous arguing, and you're going to get obstruction from a radiologist big time. And I can understand that. After all, most radiologists who order MRIs or have to do MRIs realize that the negative rate is extraordinarily high. They get very tired of negative after negative after negative. This guy had an epidural abscess in his cervical spine and his thoracal lumbar junction, each one spanning at least four vertebral spaces. What's the story tell you? Risk factors were big. Third visit is big. If you don't miss, get it in the first visit, I would say that's normal. You can't. But third visit, it was a big issue. And you're going to have to do a lot of negotiating with the radiologists. That case had a big impact on me. All right, so I'd like to just do a little review of spinal infection. Really, we got to think about when should we suspect spinal infection, and there's really three situations in which we should suspect this diagnosis. One is any patient with back pain or a neurological deficit accompanied by a fever, even though only about 50% of these patients will have a fever. Next is back pain in any immunocompromised patient, you need to think about infection. And thirdly, any recent spinal procedure plus any of the things that I just mentioned, a neurodeficit, fever, immunocompromised patient, if they've had a recent spinal procedure, you got to think about this diagnosis. If you have a low index of suspicion after a good history and physical, you should get a white blood cell count, ESR, CRP, and maybe a plain x-ray. And if they're all negative, despite their not so great sensitivities in isolation, the patient can be probably safely discharged home with close follow-up. If you have a high index of suspicion after a good history and physical, then an MRI is the way to go regardless of the blood work results. And if your index of suspicion is somewhere in between, then you need to take into account your individual patient, talk to your colleagues and consultants, 
and make some tough decisions based on the entire clinical picture. So let's move on now to a general approach to low back pain. We've touched upon and hinted on a lot of little pearls, and I want to try and condense these into uh, the key pearls for low back pain in general. Now that we've got the most difficult back pain diagnosis out of the way, spinal epidural abscess, let's talk about the three main categories of patients with low back pain. So the three main categories of patients with acute low back pain are those with nonspecific lower back pain or lumbosacral sprain, those with nerve root or radicular sciatica, and thirdly, those with serious or emergent spinal or vascular pathology. So I like to divide the most serious causes of back pain into spinal causes and vascular causes. The big bad spinal causes, as we've talked about a little bit, are spinal infection, like spinal epidural abscess, massive central disc herniation with caudoquina syndrome, and mets to the bone causing spinal cord compression. The vascular causes include leaking or ruptured AAA, retroperitoneal bleed, spinal bleed, or spinal epidural hematoma. We'll touch on most of these over the rest of the episode. Of course, there's also things like pyelonephritis and renal colic that can present with back pain as their chief complaint, but they're usually more obvious and less serious than the spinal and vascular causes I just listed. And I try to use a cognitive forcing strategy when I see patients who at first look like renal colic or pylo. What do I mean by this? Well, when I see a patient who looks like renal colic, I force myself to think about AAA so that I don't miss it. And likewise, when I see a patient who looks like pyelonephritis, I force myself to think about spinal infection because it's easy to miss and may be confused with pylo. So renal colic, AAA. Pylo, spinal infection. That way you've at least considered the diagnosis and you have a chance. Let's talk about the clinical history in patients who present to the ED with low back pain in general. Dr. Himmel, we've alluded to a few of the red flags in our first case. Can you just run through for us the general red flags on history for patients with low back pain and why they're important. Okay, so there's many approaches to this. So my first question is this, why do we even talk about red flags? What what are we worried about? Well, we talk about red flags because we worry about the 3% of patients that are gonna have serious problems. What are the serious problems? Cancer, fracture, infection, serious visceral disease, vascular disease. So a patient with cancer, what's their flag is going to be? Weight loss, chronicity of pain, and of course, a history of cancer, history of cancer. And remember, the belief that if you're cancer-free for five years, you're cancer-free is a false belief. You can present with a meth and breast cancer five, 10, 15 years after you've been cured. Why do you worry about infection? Well, it's rare, but it's serious. People with infections have what symptoms? Weight loss, immunosuppressed, fever, aching, myalgia. Now, a bit about immunosuppressant. What are the three common causes of immunosuppression? Old age, diabetes, prednisone. That's a very tough one. So, what are the red flags? Well, they say age under 18 over 50. I know there's red flags and there's red flags. How helpful is age? It ain't that helpful. Over 50? That's most of our patients I'm seeing in emergency these days. Under 18, that's a bit of an issue. 
you're worried about spondylolysis and spondylolisthesis. And I suppose really osteomyelitis is a rare but concerning possibility. Chronicity is another red flag, but not that reliable. History of cancer, absolutely a very red flag. Anybody with history of cancer and back pain, that's a big time red flag. Fevers and chills, now we know people with the flu get back pain. But if you've got back pain, back pain, back pain, and fever and chills, that's a red flag. Weight loss, sure. Chronic infection, immunosuppression, cancer. Unremitting pain in spite of analgesics. Yep, that's definitely a red flag. Someone who said unremitting pain 24 hours a day, not relieved by lying down, persisting at nighttime, not relieved with Advil or Tylenol, or Tylenol 3, that's a big time red flag. Intravenous drug abuse, big time red flag. That and cancer are the really, really big time uh, red flags. How about trauma? Well, you don't want to miss fractures. There's two kinds of trauma, major trauma and minor trauma. Someone without osteoporosis, basically people under 55, otherwise healthy, major trauma. Minor falls not an issue. But a woman over 65 or 75 with minor trauma could easily have a fracture. So trauma is definitely a red flag. Bowel or bladder incontinence, absolutely crucial. Now, I've got to make a comment about incontinence and stool incontinence. Number one, retention is a very sensitive findings for serious spinal cord and serious low back conditions. But remember, it's not specific. I've seen tons of patients who have retention of two, three, four hundred, five cc's, and I can never find a serious underlying cause. People after general anesthesia, men over the age of 50 or 60 in pain, women who are postpartum with epidural anesthetics, they often come back with retention. So it's a very sensitive finding, and the absence of retention is reassuring. And remember, you always get retention before you get incontinence. So retention is a sensitive red flag, but not specific. Overflow incontinence is much more worrisome. That means you've had major, major, major retention. Fecal incontinence is an absolutely serious red flag. In many ways, uh, much more specific than urinary incontinence, but much less frequently. Severe progressive neurological deficit. Weakness getting worse, paralysis getting worse is a red flag. And of course, major weakness. These are all red flags. And the inability to walk is a red flag. Not specific but sensitive. Think twice before you send somebody home in a wheelchair or carry it by two of his buddies. There's lots of red flags, but remember, why do we worry about red flags? Infection, fracture, cancer, uh, AAA. Many ways, thinking about those conditions will tell you the red flags right off the bat. One of the most important red flags, history of cancer is a big, 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 big deal. Intravenous drug use is a big deal, immunosuppression. Don't forget, there are more and more patients on prednisone, more and more patients with anti-tumor necrosis factors. These are serious red flags for infection, and they often suppress the other signs of infection. So to further comment on Dr. Himmel's sage advice, incontinence is a big deal. There are a lot of people out there, especially males with prostate problems. A lot of people have back pain chronically and come in with urgency and, and incontinence. And yes, we must think of the five disasters uh, alluded to, but it's when, when you think twice, it's easy uh, almost always to dissect out the uh, prostate 
problem from neurogenic bladder. That's what we're talking about. Of course, this classic features of prostatism is a history of prostatic hypertrophy, and they're on the medications, and they feel they have to go and void, and then they dribble, right? Versus neurogenic bladder, for whatever reason, where they don't feel they have to go, right? This is when we're talking about spinal injury, and we'll get into cotyquinus syndrome, they knock out their afferents because of the lesion, whatever the lesion is, and the sacral nerves, and as such, the bladder just distends, 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 but they don't feel they have to go. They may sense, hey, I haven't voided in 14, 16 hours, but they don't have the urge to go. And then afterwards, if they wait long enough, they'll get the overflow incontinence and or present with the concomitant abdominal pain with the back pain. So easy to figure out, especially with bedside ultrasound now to confirm. And typically we could sort that out versus the spinal emergency. Likewise, back pain and rectal problems. So doctor, I haven't had a bowel movement for like five days and I've got this horrible back pain. Well, they're bound to be on an opioid. And we know opioids, they may not get rid of the pain, but they're going to cause constipation, right? And so that's an added factor you have to be concerned about. And as Walter said, I think uh, my experience and, and the literature supports late findings, rectal incontinence. Uh, much more early on is the bladder problems, almost always associated with saddle anesthesia and and supported by physical findings, DRE, anal wink, etc. Okay. So actually, you just mentioned saddle anesthesia. We're going to get onto the physical exam, but in terms of the history, can you comment on the nuances of obtaining a history of saddle paresthesias? Right. So what's the question you ask the patient? So I used to ask the following question. Uh, when you're sitting at you, can you feel your buttocks? Can you, can you feel your bum? Can you feel your thigh? Does it, does it feel normal when you're sitting in a chair? And most people sort of understand the question and will say, yeah, it feels, I can. Now I've learned to ask a different question. The question asked now is, does your buttocks, do your thighs, does it feel normal? Does it feel weird, different from how it usually feels? And no longer ask, can you feel your buttocks or your thighs, but does it feel different? around where your bum is or your anus is or whatever term I have to use where your thighs are, does it feel different than normal? In addition to what uh, Walter suggests, I asked, well, when you wipe your bum after a bowel movement, do you notice anything different? And then they may say, you know what, it's numb. And if they don't say that, then I lead into more direct questioning to uh, try and elicit subtle uh, saddle anesthesia. Yeah. So the BMJ published in... 2009, the best four-page review on Cowden-Aquinas syndrome I've ever read in my entire life. It's fantastic. We'll have a reference for you. But here was a patient description of his experience with Cowden-Aquinas syndrome. Uh, by the way, I'll tell you, I personally had Cowden-Aquinas syndrome in December of, 2000, uh, December of 2000. I was off work about nine months afterwards. And my experience was identical to what this patient described. Absolutely identical. So I'm going to read the description directly. A patient's perspective. I wasn't that concerned at first. I just had sneezed. Sudden searing lower back pain was unpleasantly familiar to me and usually got better by itself. I didn't notice anything unusual until 
I started to get pins and needles in my feet. And then after painfully struggling to the toilet, I remember wiping myself with my toilet paper and it felt decidedly odd. Not completely numb, but distant. So as Brian said, the question is, do things feel a bit different when you wipe your bottom? Any different than usual? And let me tell you, man, if you've got S2, S3, S4 involvement, it will feel different than usual. It was my refusal to admit to numbness that fooled my GP. Obviously a British patient using that term. He asked, my GP did, if I could feel him touching me. Not whether his touch was normal, but if he could feel, if I could feel him touching me. Obviously the wrong question. The question isn't, can you feel this? The question is, does this feel normal? He organized an urgent outpatient referral for three days later. This is Britain, of course. Foolishly, I just waited. Typical British patient. Not reporting that the progressive loss of sensation, the muscle fasciculation, the creeping incontinence, and the onset of deep burning pain around my perineum was unusual. Unable to arrange ambulance transfer, a friend took me to the hospital lying in the back of my car. With 90 minutes of arrival, I had an MRI and I was in the theater undergoing an L4, L5 disectomy. Two days later, the post-operative anxiety was replaced by euphoria when I managed to stand unaided and pass urine into a bottle. So the question is, does anything feel different from usual? Does anything feel different when you wipe your bottom? Do your legs feel different than usual? Does your bum feel different than usual? When you sit, do things feel any different than usual? That's probably your best starting point. Let's move on to case two. Case two is out of a 49-year-old man who presents to your ED with a chief complaint of several hours of severe crampy abdominal pain. He has had difficulty urinating for the past 12 hours. Four days prior, he fell off his bicycle and has been suffering from low back pain ever since. There was no head injury or extremity injury. In terms of neurologic symptoms, he does complain of decreased sensation to the lateral foot. He has a past medical history of chronic low back pain, which he takes ibuprofen for occasionally and goes to physiotherapy regularly, but no other medical problems. He denies any change in bladder or bowel function. On exam, he's pacing around the room in obvious distress in a stooped posture, bent forward posture, resting his hands on his thighs for comfort. His vitals are normal. His abdominal exam reveals diffusely tender protuberant abdomen with no palpable mass, normal bowel sounds, and no peritoneal signs. He has no spinal process tenderness, paraspinal muscle tenderness, or CVA tenderness. He has an abnormal straight leg raise on the left and a positive cross straight leg raise on the right. He has no saddle anesthesia. He has decreased sensation and strength in the L5-S1 distribution, and his ankle tendon reflexes are absent. Let's use this case to talk about the physical exam. Dr. Steinhardt, can you review for us what kind of physical you do on patients who present with low back pain, who you suspect a serious cause, and just go through some of the red flags that you're looking for on physical exam in general. So first, how does the patient look at the bedside, right? What's the gestalt? Are they pacing back and forth? Are they flexed? Are they bedridden? Are they twisting around and writhing in pain? What are the vital signs next? Is there a fever or not? Are they hypotensive, hypertensive? Are they tachycardic, bradycardic? And then if they're in a lot of distress, 
as we alluded to, sometimes very difficult to get an adequate physical exam. And I often treat their pain very aggressively, very quickly, and then come back when the anxiety and the what I call supertentorial overlay has subsided somewhat so I could get what I hope to be the most valid exam that I can under these sometimes difficult uh, scenarios. So if they're writhing in pain and they have back pain, if you have mechanical back pain, you don't want to move, right? If your vertebral column is compromised, you don't want to move around. So if they're writhing around, you, you've got to think something colicky and right away you have to think AAA. Sure, there may be renal colic as part of this, but you want to rule out AAA. If they're stooped in posture, we've alluded to, this opens up the spinal canal uh, versus extension, and you have to think of something compromising the diameter of the spinal canal. Dr. Himmel and Dr. Steinhardt are now going to comment on the value of the digital rectal exam in the patient with back pain. The moment your likelihood of catequina syndrome, cancer, fracture goes up, I think you basically have to do a rectal examination, period. Am I suggesting every patient with back needs a rectal examination? Absolutely not. The vast majority do not. But the moment your brain thinks of infection, catequina syndrome, cancer, abscesses, have to rectal examination. And look for two things, sensation and tone. And again, if you're concerned enough that something is going on, you, you have to do it. A DRE again when they're comfortable, not when they're writhing around or otherwise in pain. It's very difficult and poor validity in in DRE exam. There's subtleties that may be at that moment, and the patient has discomfort and may not want to squeeze down on your finger. If a ma- if it's a male, you can kind of do an end run around this and do the anal wink or bubble cavernosis reflex, which is more valid, I think. But it's fraught with subjectivity, unless it's blatantly patulent or blatantly strong. These are good findings, but there's that gray zone in between that's hard to reproduce. You want to look at your abdominal exam. You talked about forcing strategies. and Every back pain, if it's a one-year-old to a hundred-year-old, I go straight to the abdomen. I don't even bother looking at the back initially. Rule out nasties like AAA you're going to percuss for bladder distension and or use your bedside ultrasound. Tenderness over the area, again, I think Walter alluded to, not very specific or sensitive, but uh, we do it for completeness sake. The, the one thing I find with palpating the back is that if you actually do percussion over the spinous process, I find that's somewhat more distinguishing than just palpating all over the back. What's your opinion of that? So better sensitivity and specificity, but not something I hang my hat on in particular. You want to start away from the sensitive area as with any tender area. You want to distract the patient as you do with any, any time you're searching for tenderness anywhere. And you want to weigh that with all your other findings, history and physical as part of your final clinical impression, yes. And then you want to do motor exam. And I like to walk them if there isn't gross findings, especially when they complain about 
problems with gait and walking, but again, this means you have to have adequate analgesia on board for them to sometimes get up and walk for you. Subtleties, when they're up, is I like to get them on their toes to check for plantar flexion and then heels for extension. This, I think, is a gross test, but uh, sometimes cuts through the manual exam when they're recumbent and, and so anxious and you get a, an impression for, for distal power using that. Sensation, if, they, if you could demonstrate paresthesia or anesthesia and typically it's using a, a sharp pinpoint versus your Kleenex or your fingertip, uh, then that's important to elucidate in general terms. Straight leg raising and cross straight leg raising, as you alluded to in the case, And can you just detail for us what the cross straight leg raise is and why it's important? Right. So straight leg raising is not specific for anything. So the patient may complain of pain shooting down into their thigh, and this could be hamstring strain. And so to get a more specific test, we do a cross straight leg raise where the unaffected limb reproduces the back pain, and more more importantly, the, the symptoms in the contralateral leg. The sciatic nerve in cadaver studies are shown not to be strained before 30 degrees flexion. So if the patient is complaining of pain with minimal lift of that ipsilateral affected leg, then that's not a positive finding uh, in of itself. If you put down a straight leg raising test as positive, it has to meet the following criteria. A, the pain must appear between 30 and 70 degrees of straight leg raising. And B, the pain must radiate distal to the knee. So if the pain occurs between 30 and 70 degrees and goes distal to the knee posteriorly, that's a positive test. If it doesn't meet those two criteria, it is a negative test and should be ignored and considered unhelpful. A positive test will be helpful in making the likelihood of a disc protrusion greater. It has to meet those criteria. If you do straight leg raising and the patient complains of pain in their back or their thigh and nothing else, you put down SLR negative. And another way you could try and confirm your radicular findings is the so-called slump test, where you exaggerate the strain on the sciatic nerve and then relieve the pressure And this is more supportive of radicular pain versus hamstring strain. So they're sitting, flexed, upper thorax, affected leg is extended. And then the operator slash clinician gently forces the neck forward into full flexion, as well as dorsiflex and sometimes, quote, a stretch, pardon the pun. But then with one hand, they dorsiflex the ipsilateral leg and flex the cervical area of the patient, so maximizing the strain on the sciatic nerve. So you you stretch it, they have symptoms in their thigh, and then you ease off, say, on the neck flexion, take the strain off the sciatic nerve, and if, if it's true radicular pain, they should feel some relief in their thigh. If it's thigh strain, it's irrelevant. The single most important bedside test you can do when you're suspecting that someone has caught Aquinas syndrome is a post-void residual. 
Dr. Himmel is now going to comment on the importance of a post-void residual. So if you're worried about the catoquine syndrome, you are going to be worried about S2, S3, S4. And you're going to be worried about afferents and efferents to the bladder. Basically, if you have no residual, the likelihood of a catoquine syndrome is rapidly approaching zero. So a residual of under 100 cc's tells you that your chance of catoquine syndrome at that moment, not tomorrow, we'll discuss this later, but at that moment is about zero. On the other hand, if you have a residual of more than 100 or 200 cc's, whatever your institution, your consultant thinks is important, then you have basically entered the world of possible catoquine syndrome, although it's not that specific. So anytime you think about a dysfunction of the spinal cord, particularly distal to uh, L1, you ask the patient to stand up or at least in bed, empty the bladder as well as possible. They have to do every attempt to empty the bladder spontaneously. You then ask the nurse to put a Foley catheter in and measure the outflow for at least the next 30 minutes, not the next five hours. I see that happen. Well, you've lost your sensitivity and your specificity dramatically, but the next 30 minutes. So it's very, very important in those cases, and I would use a Foley catheter. There's a discussion now that when you want to look at bladder residual, you don't have to use a Foley, you, have to, you can use an ultrasound machine. Well, I gotta tell you, the current standard in 2012, at least to lawyers, a lot of neurosurgeons on a phone is a Foley catheter at an ultrasound machine. But I'm not sure what a significant residual is. Some would argue more than 100 cc's, some would argue more than 200 cc's, everybody would agree 500 cc's is significant. But I think at the current time, if you're worried about neurological impairment, catechonic syndrome, stuff like that, the way to go is a Foley catheter. In my understanding, we had talked about this in our ultrasound episode, was that uh, with the bedside scanners and with the bedside ultrasound, that it can be inaccurate about 20% either way, that they are helpful if you put your bedside ultrasound on and there's obviously a liter or two of urine in there, then that can help you. Or if you put your bedside ultrasound on and you see that there's no urine, then it can be helpful in the extremes. But anywhere in between, really a, a Foley catheter is the definitive bedside test to determine whether a patient has a post-void residual. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think if you're speaking to radiologists and you're speaking to neurosurgeons, which of course we have to need their assistance, they're much more impressed with the number of mills by a Foley catheter. Okay, so let's continue with our patient, uh, our 40 or so year old patient here uh, who has uh, right leg pain. He fell off the bike and now he's got some uh, abdominal pain as well. Uh, this patient did have a post-void residual and it showed 900 milliliters. The neurosurgical team was consulted immediately for suspected cauda equina syndrome and the MRI showed a massive central disc herniation with cauda equina intrusion and the patient was taken to the OR for a discectomy. Unfortunately, the patient was left with a lifetime indwelling Foley catheter, but had full normal function of his lower extremities as well as erectile function. In this case, the patient had a history of chronic low back pain. And sometimes we all too quickly blow off the patient with chronic low back pain, thinking that they're just in with another episode of an exacerbation of their chronic low back pain. When in fact, patients with chronic back pain are at risk for cardioquinous syndrome. Dr. Himmel is now going to talk about the three different kinds of presentations you can have with cardioquinous syndrome. You know, there's just three kinds of presentations for cardioquinous syndrome. I want to discuss them briefly. 
three kinds. Number one, the patient with chronic back pain or chronic sciatica. That patient, even if they had a previous vasectomy, had presented with catacata syndrome six months, a year, two years later, in the same disc level or another disc level. That's type one, chronic back pain and or chronic sciatica. And, and that's the most common. And that's the most common. And when I say sciatica, I mean back pain, going down your leg, distal to the knee, posteriorly. Type two, bang, a sudden onset of weakness and hypoesthesia and sphincter dysfunction or bladder dysfunction. That's the second presentation, bang all of a sudden. But there's a third presentation of cauda aquatic syndrome, and it's the following. It's the subtle appearance over one or two or three weeks of progressive bladder dysfunction and progressive difficulty with bowel movements and progressive numbness. So you've got three presentations, chronic back pain, chronic sciatica, the sudden onset over a couple of hours, and the gradual onset over two or three weeks. Like you just described, the gradual onset over two or three weeks, I mean, just like spinal epidural abscess, there's, there's often stages to cauda equina syndrome from disc disease, and it depends where you are in the stage of disease, whether you might be suspecting cauda equina syndrome or not. What are some of the things that might trigger you to work up someone for cauda equina who presents somewhere on the spectrum of this disease? Okay, the guy who suddenly presents with uh, pain and or numbness and bladder retention and so forth, no problem, that's not going to be an issue. But that's an easy one. Let's talk about what cauda equina syndrome is. And I have struggled for years. What in the world is cauda equina syndrome? Because I'll be quite frank, 99 times out of 100, when I get an MRI or call a neurosurgeon, and say I've got a patient with 500 cc's of urinary retention and back pain, or the same patient with pain down the leg, the ultimate diagnosis is not cauda equina syndrome. So you've got to warn the listeners of the following. If you can take all our advice, and you can measure the retention, and you're going to get a residual, and the residual will be 500 cc's, and in the vast majority of cases, it's not cauda equina syndrome. Because we know from experience, severe constipation, severely lying in bed for a long time, unbelievably bad pain, being after age 50, you're going to get retention in a lot of people, and it's not Cauda-Aquana syndrome. So what is Cauda-Aquana syndrome? Here's what the British Medical Journal article said, and I think it's accurate, and I think it's beautiful. To have Cauda-Aquana syndrome, you have to have two characteristics. Number one, you've got to have either retention or rectal dysfunction or sexual dysfunction, or all of the above. So number one, if cauda equina syndrome, you must have a bladder problem, or a rectal problem, or sexual dysfunction, all of the above. The most sensitive is the bladder, of course. Number two, if you have number one, you also must have number two. Number two is you've got to have one of the following. Saddle anesthesia, or saddle hypoesthesia, or anal hypoesthesia. So if you've got anal or saddle hypoesthesia and a dysfunction of your bladder or your rectum, then you've probably got cauda syndrome. So those are the things to keep in mind and those are the things to look for. The moment your patient has those two characteristics, you may choose to investigate even the absence of those, but when they have those two characteristics, you absolutely have to get radiological imaging. That's the criteria I use. But I'll tell you, when they start to complain of hypoesthesia in the saddle area or anal area, plus bladder dysfunction, the chance of cauda syndrome is profoundly high. On the other hand, 
they have bladder dysfunction, even rectless function, in the absence of sensory findings in the saddle area and in the absence of sensory findings in the anal area, the chance of catacoidal syndrome is profoundly small. They may have a major disc problem, they may have a major disc herniation, but the chance of catacoidal is small. You may still want to get an MRI, but don't be surprised if the neurosurgeon or consultant does not operate and treats them conservatively. So the full-fledged picture needs those two criteria, hypoesthesia in those two areas, plus a dysfunction of bladder or rectum. If they have that, they've got catacoidal syndrome, period. Dr. Steinhardt, there's been a huge variety of practice when it comes to using steroids for patients with cauda equina syndrome caused by disc herniation. Should we be using IV steroids for patients who we've diagnosed cauda equina syndrome in or not? I, th- I think the only evidence for, for using steroids, in particular dexamethasone parenterally, is when you have metastatic lesions causing catequina or or otherwise, but metastatic lesions. There's good evidence uh, for the use of uh, dexamethasone, what dose to use, how often to give it, do you bolus or not. There is no literature to support one way or the other. You could start a 10 milligram bolus and 4 milligrams QID to 100 milligram bolus and 24 milligrams QID and anywhere in between. But I think the only supportive evidence is for metastatic lesions to the bone. Okay. That being said, but the the literature really only supports metastatic lesions to the bone. It doesn't support traumatic lesions. It doesn't support disc herniations, spinal epidural abscess. In real practice, do you ever give dexamethasone to patients with cauda syndrome to bridge them until they get to the OR? I think I can be definitive on that one. There is zero role for dexamethasone for disc herniation, period. There is every indication for the use of dexamethasone to treat metastatic cancer in the vertebra of the spinal cord causing neurological symptoms. Try and be a little more definitive. Oh, yeah. you know, what, is your, what is your opinion I on dexamethasone? I'll be definitive. No role. Is that what I said? Yes. Thing. Okay. I, I you can put it on the air. You <laughs> Sorry, man. All I right. can be definitive. Let's move on to our third case. Our third case is out of a 43-year-old woman who presents to your ED with a three-week history of progressive low back pain. She decided to come to the emergency room that day because the pain was so severe that she was unable to sleep the night prior. There was no radiation of the pain, no alleviating factors, and no aggravating factors. She's been having difficulty walking because of numbness in the right leg, but denies saddle paresthesias. She has normal bowel and bladder function and denies fever, chills, and night sweats. She says that she's never had pain like this before and denies any back trauma or previous back problems. She also complains of general weakness and vague muscle aches, mild headache, as well as nausea and constipation. Her past medical history includes hypothyroidism, 
diabetes, which are all well controlled with medication, as well as breast cancer. She had a mastectomy two years prior and was in remission, according to her oncologist. On exam, she appears a bit drowsy, but unable to find a comfortable position. Her vitals are unremarkable, except for a heart rate of 110. She has spinous process and paraspinal muscle tenderness around the high L-spine. Her lower extremity exam reveals scattered decreased sensation that doesn't seem to fit a dermatomal distribution, global 3 out of 5 power in the lower extremities with normal patellar but absent ankle reflexes. Dr. Himmel, what are your thoughts on this case so far? If I saw a patient like this, two things impressed me right away. Number one, she's got a a neurological problem. And uh, number two, she has a history of cancer. So let's go through the case in more detail. Um, she's had the progressive back pain for three weeks. Well, generally speaking, mechanical back pain tends to get better after a couple of days or a couple of weeks. It's certainly not worse and worse and worse, if not better. So progressively, worsening pain is a, is a concern for a serious cause of back pain. She's unable to sleep at night. Mechanical back pain tends to get better when you lie down. Pain due to infection or pain due to cancer is often worse at night. She's difficulty walking, always a concern. I mean, the first part of every neuro exam is watch the person walk and watch the person talk. So difficulty walking is a problem. Normal bowel bladder function is somewhat reassuring, although I certainly have seen patients who say my bowel function is fine, as is my bladder function, and they still have residual urine. So uh, reassuring, but not definitive. A weakness and uh, muscle aches, non-specific, but again, possibly worrying and constipation can be from painkillers, but as well as hypercalcemia. Now, uh, you have to risk factors, and of course we know risk factors are a, a big tool in helping diagnose the serious causes of back pain, and she's got diabetes. Once again, probably one of the commonest causes of immunosuppression. She had a mastectomy two years earlier, and we know that after breast cancer, thyroid cancer, kidney cancer, you can get secondaries many, many, many years later after you've been theoretically cured. She appeared a bit drowsy, her heart rate was 110. Any heart rate above 90 is a concern, above 100 is a concern. Of course, people in pain will have a fast heart rate, that's worrisome. I often find that rapid respiratory rate is much more helpful than rapid heart rate, and that wasn't common to both. She had tenderness over the spinous processes. Well, they say that if you've got a, a cancer in the spine, an epidural abscess, you'll tend to have central pain. And I suppose that's, uh, that's reasonable, not that specific, but reasonable. And she had high L-spine tenderness. Now, her sensory findings did not fit a dermatomal pattern. That doesn't rule out neurological disease. We know with a well-defined disc pressing on a well-defined nerve, you're gonna follow a dermatomal pattern. But with epidural abscesses, with cancer, you can get multiple nerves affected. So the exam may be very difficult to really figure out. That's not surprising at all. She had weakness in lower extremities. Well, that's concerning, that matter due to catechoan issues or spinal cord issues and her reflexes were uh, normal at the knees and absent at the ankles. In people over 60, you often get no ankle jerks at all. In diabetics, you often get no ankle jerks, no knee jerks. So the thing about reflexes are I find symmetry is the most important thing to look for, and reflexes were symmetric. So those are my concerns, and I think basically, this is the kind of person you absolutely must rule out metastasis to the spinal, giving you uh, nerve root and or spinal cord problems or both. So the case continues. The patient went on to have an L-spine x-ray and routine blood work. The x-ray showed a compression fracture of L1. The blood work was unremarkable except for a slightly low hemoglobin and platelet count. Dr. Steinhardt, 
So you've got this patient uh, with a history of breast cancer, diabetes, who's got some neurologic findings, back pain, has a L-spine fracture. What would you do at this point? What would be your next move? What are your thoughts? So I'd go back, first of all, to the x-ray and make sure there's no soft tissue mass abutting the fracture. And I'd look again at the density of the bone. A metastatic lesion is just, in, in any position, is not just the lesion itself, but it incites an inflammatory response, uh, likewise an infection. And, and so m- more often than not, uh, there will be concomitant edema of the surrounding area. And if you look, you may see uh, prevertebral soft tissue swelling. We know to look for that in the C-spines when we're looking at trauma, and this happens to be swelling and or hematoma. And likewise, if you're looking for lytic lesions, just look at the on the cross table or lateral C spine, especially you can see you can see soft tissue mass. If you don't look for it, you'll never see it. It's rare, but it then adds more certainty to your your diagnosis. Again, the bone density is not just your typical osteoporotic fracture, but you know a keen eye will will look at that vertebra and say it's a pathologic fracture. It's uh, there's something going on with the bone. So that's my first thing. And then the constitutional symptoms is supported by somewhat abnormal hemoglobin and platelet count just smacks again of some constitutionality in this case. And as Walter has alluded to, we work in a environment where we see bad things, right? So breast cancer, amongst other cancers, have a very good cure rate but we see the people who fall through the cracks and and the ice and you're never cured from breast cancer if you're an er doc well always suspicious well put this patient went on to have an mri of the entire spine which showed moderate cord compression at l1 as well as multiple bony mets at multiple vertebral levels neurosurgery and medicine were consulted Uh, The internist ordered up a TSH, T4, calcium, magnesium, phosphate, and ESR, and the patient was found to be severely hypercalcemic, accounting for her generalized weakness, drowsiness, nausea, and constipation, and had an ESR of 110. The patient received a normal saline bolus, IV pimidronate, and IV dexamethasone, 100 milligrams, and went to the OR the next day. She walked out of the hospital three weeks later with normal lower extremity function and a corrected calcium on an oral bisphosphonate and had follow-up with her oncologist. So spinal mets are the number one most common cause of spinal cord compression. Why is it so important that we pick up this diagnosis early on? Like epidural abscesses, spinal mets go through various phases. Asymptomatic, symptoms of pain, and neurological symptoms. And the neurological symptoms with spinal mets are usually motor symptoms first, and then sensory and then progressive paralysis. So clearly, the sooner you pick up the disease, the less likely you're gonna get progression. Once you get symptoms and the collapse, you end up with instability and spinal cord damage and the spread of tumor. The best predictor of how a patient will do is their status at the time of diagnosis and their status at the time of radiation, pomegranate, and or surgery. So you want to pick these things up as early as possible 
to give them the best opportunity for minimizing the downhill path into progressive harm's way. However, let's be frank. These patients are tough to diagnose very, very earlier, but the earlier the better. And as we've discussed, and as this case demonstrates, risk factors, history, and physical. With this case, I'd like to talk a little bit more about imaging of the spine. We've, we've already talked about CT versus MRI when we're talking about infection, but let's start off with x-rays. Dr. Steinhardt, you had talked about looking for soft tissue swelling on the x-ray, fractures that in young people without osteoporosis, you need to think about pathological lesions. More specifically, what are some of the key findings on x-ray that we should be looking out for for undifferentiated back pain patients who have spinal process tenderness, let's say, and we're looking for METs? How good is the x-ray at detecting METs and what kind of lesions should we be looking for? Well, Walter and I are both of the vintage that uh, really we, all we had was lumbar x-rays for these patients earlier on in our career. CT was in its fledgling stages, largely unavailable after business hours. And even then you had to kick down the door, uh, much like MRI can be in some facilities today. So we were scrutinizing, we've been trained to scrutinize plain films and if that's what you choose to order as your first image, so be it. They are not terribly uh, specific or sensitive for lytic lesions to the bone. Again, you want to look at the bone density. Uh, you want to look at soft tissue swelling in the bone. You want to look for so-called winking owl sign on the AP. So these are the pedicles being looked at face on and with hematogenous spread of metastatic lesions, they tend to settle in end arterioles, which tend to be in the pedicles. And erosion of one of the pedicles, if you wait long enough, uh, will present as a winking owl sign. It's more sensitive and specific for a lytic lesion. We'll have that in the, in the written summary. We'll have a picture of that. Likewise, you want to look at bony destruction, and it, it can, it, Paget's disease can really fool you. It's, it's not rare. Uh, and it gives you a very distorted bony picture, typically in the pelvis, but can't crawl up the lower lumbar spine at least. Uh, it's a distorted bone. And once you see it, you never forget it. And you will not fail to differentiate it from a more broad-based metastatic lesion. It's, it's quite classic, but you have to be able to identify. And I encourage our listeners to look at a few images of Paget's disease and you'll you'll recognize it not uncommon and then the punched out lesions of something like multiple myeloma again not rare at all especially uh, in the older person but can present people in their 40s you want to look for the punched out lesions of multiple myeloma with concomitant symptomatology and then lastly if you're going to get the LS views why don't you look at the SI joints so SI, sacroiliac pain, is hard to distinguish from lower lumbar pain, should not get ridiculous features with this, is more indicative of spondyloinflammatory conditions, especially in younger people, and you want to recognize this. Again, if you wait long enough, you may see fuzziness of, in the areas of the SI joints, and if you go back to the patient that may twig you to look for stiffness throughout 
the axial uh, skeleton of the patient, especially if it's a male, especially if it's young, especially if they've known to have inflammatory bowel disease and or uveitis in the past, this may clinch it for you. The diagnosis for auto-inflammatory disease, the classic one being anky-spon, ankylosing spondylitis. One of the reasons we do get x-rays, although it's happened less than Ontario now, is that the patient expects it. If you have a choice between getting a lumbosacral spine and having a 10-minute discussion, sometimes the best thing is to get a lumbosacral spine and cut the discussion. But you know, we have to realize something. There's lots and lots of radiation in a lumbosacral spine. Now, there's an amazing article in the 2009 New England Journal of Medicine that reviews the amount of radiation in every x-ray imaginable. Now, this is going to shock you. A lumbosacral spine... A plain old lumbosacral spine has as much radiation as 70 chest x-rays, 1.5 millisieverts. Now a CT scan is three times that amount. But an LS spine, a young person, has a lot of bloody radiation. So I think we all agree, if you're worried about the red flags, abscesses, catequanus syndrome, stuff like that, you're going to have to get definitive imaging. We've talked a little bit about CT and MRI. Dr. Himmel, what role does CT and MRI have in working up patients with suspected spinal cord or cauda compression from any cause? While we don't want to miss things like spinal mets causing cord compression and spinal epidural abscess, the literature shows that in general, MRI and CTs are overused for patients with back pain in the ED. So when do you pull the trigger to order a CT or an MRI? As long ago as 20 years, in 1990, the Journal of Medicine published an article in which they got volunteers who agreed to have a MRI. And what did they find out? They found out that up to 50% of patients who had MRI, 50% of people had MRI who had absolutely zero symptoms, had annulus tears, disc protrusions, disc herniations, osteophytes, and disc bulging, of course. So if you MRI the average person, odds are at least 50% are going to have multiple abnormalities. And they will attribute the abnormalities to their pain from that moment henceforth. So there's a real negative problem with getting MRIs and CT scans. So if someone has no red flags, if the clinical assessment is this is probably nonspecific or mechanical back pain, you do nothing. Who then gets investigations? Number one, if the patient has uh, sciatic pain and they're a candidate for surgery, pain more than four or five, six weeks, pain which is extremely disabling, pain associated with progressive muscular weakness, that is a reasonable person who's going to get imaging. Apart from that, it's only the high-risk patients who will get imaging, whom we've largely discussed. The other exception might be perhaps in a young person who has ongoing pain for weeks and weeks and weeks, you'll want to miss significant spondylolisthesis and significant spondylolysis. Can you just review quickly for the listeners what those two are? Right. So there's a, a very poorly piece of anatomy called the pars interarticularis. That's a piece of anatomy where the pedicle, the facet joint, and the lamina meet. And in young people, often athletes, when they're between the ages of 11 to 15 years of age, they'll get lower back pain because of subtle fractures or gentle weakness in that bit of bone over there. The pars interarticularis of L4 or L5. As a consequence of that, the L5 may slip forward on S1, or the L4 may slip forward in L5. So if you have a defect in that bone, it's called spondylolysis, and if the vertebra slips forward, it's called spondylolysthesis. 
And you can get similar slippage in older people because of degeneration. So if you suspect those conditions, and you probably would in an adolescent with persistent ongoing lower back pain, you might get expert in those conditions. But basically, in the patient seen and emerge acutely with a history of pain less than four or five weeks, where you have little concern about epidural abscesses or a cancer or a catechonic syndrome, I would say there's virtually zero role for imaging. And you can tell the patient, as we do for patients who want to have CTs of their brain, that the amount of radiation in one lumbosacral spine is equal to 70 chest x-rays. That will shock the hell out of patients. It sure shocked the hell out of me. And if you add obliques, looking for the Scotty Dog lesion, which is pathognomonic for your pars interarticularis lesion, you're doubling the radiation. Okay, so that's about imaging and when not to do imaging. Let's talk a little bit about the blood work. In this case, the patient had a little bit of a low hemoglobin, low platelets, elevated ESR of 110, and hypercalcemia. Dr. Steinhardt, can you explain to our listeners the significance of these findings and how they fit into the clinical picture here? So we knew from the clinical presentation that something bad was likely going on. And the fact that you, it affects your uh, hemoglobin and your platelet count uh, just supports the notion that something constitutional bad is going on. You then chose to uh, add a acute phase reactant, be CRP and ESR, and that's elevated in the face of anything pre-existent causing its elevation. It is, again, supportive of something bad. With the acute phase reactants, as we discussed, if your suspicions are low and they're normal, then you may not proceed with aggressive investigation. But having the pretest probability of being intermittent or high for something uh, nasty, these elevated acute phase reactants, ESR, CRP, again, support your suspicions of an inflammatory or infective or malignant process going on and, and it supports you going further. I think the, an analogy might be with, with troponin and BNP. If it's elevated, you're not sure why, but it's bad news down the road, uh, all things being equal otherwise. And then the presentation of anorexia, drowsiness, confusion, constipation could all go in keeping with someone who's already on high-dose opiates for their back pain. But the accompanying polyuria that you see with hypercalcemia uh, because it affects the countercurrent multiplication system in the loop of Henley. If I harken back 35 plus years to my renal physiology, so this is the giveaway. It's not diabetes with the polyuria and polydipsia. It is the renal dysfunction because of hypercalcemia that causes these symptoms. And I've referred patients now, I, I hate to be cavalier about this, but we've seen, unfortunately, so many of these presentations. I've referred cases before I even get the calcium back, and I tell the consultant there's hypercalcemia, that, and I start treating for it, and they tell me, well, what's the value? And I say, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm sure they've got hypercalcemia. And it's unfortunate, but we're seeing it more and more commonly as people survive their initial cancers and get, quote, cures or remissions, and then uh, present with these nasty uh, secondaries. So that's great. I mean, we see so many patients with urinary frequency, and usually we think either it's a UTI or it's an undiagnosed diabetes hyperglycemia, but uh, I like the idea of 
sticking hypercalcemia into the differential for patients that present with urinary frequency? In the proper setting, yes. Okay, so some of the other symptoms that this patient had, drowsiness and constipation and all those constitutional symptoms would help support that, especially in the setting of the patient who you suspect might have bony METs. Dr. Himmel, we've got a patient here with METs to the bone and a compression fracture. There has been some literature on bisphosphonate therapy, both for patients with compression fractures and with patients with METs to the bone and patients who have both. As ED docs, what do we need to know about the role of bisphosphonate therapy in these conditions? You've got compression fractures associated with osteoporosis, and you've got compression fractures associated with cancer, of course. And uh, salmon calcitonin and bisphosphonates have been studied for all those conditions. Now, the studies are pretty small, but here's what they say. In regards to osteoporosis, first of all, there is very powerful evidence that salmon calcitonin is extraordinarily effective in mitigating the pain of a compression fracture associated with osteoporosis. Now, the theories are many. It's partly because of the inhibition of osteoclastic activity, but also calcitonin is a very important mediator in the pain pathways. So there may be some anti-inflammatory and pain pathway blocking benefits to calcitonin. Okay, and that's the intranasal stuff? It's called myocalcin in Canada. Salmon calcitonin is 200 units twice a day or 400 units a day for about a month. And the uh, mitigation of pain begins within two, three, four days, and it's actually quite significant. Now, have they studied intravenous amigranate for osteoporotic fractures? Yes, they have, and yes, it's effective, and it's no more effective than calcitonin. I don't think it's a common practice to order somebody with osteoporotic fracture intravenous pimigranate because most of these patients are going to go home anyways. So that's not really realistic. Now, how about the uh, fracture secondary to cancer? Well, they studied calcitonin and intravenous pimigranate and solidronic acid intravenously in those patients. There is no question that bisphosphonates have been shown to be effective fractures associated with cancer to relieve pain and to actually control the progress of fractures and actually mitigate the spread of cancer. So there's clear-cut benefit for intravenous pimigranate in those cases. And of course, the most important treatment there is diagnosis, early referral, radiation, dexamethasone, plus or minus surgery. Intravenous bisphosphonate is a supplemental treatment to control the pain and perhaps even the spread of metastatic disease with cancer-related fractures. As far as hypercalcemia goes, bisphosphonates will be very effective in that. But we do know that calcitonin works much more quickly than bisphosphonates to control hypercalcemia. And some people would argue they'll begin with calcitonin intramuscularly and give bisphosphonates concurrently in the patient with hypercalcemia and invasion of bone. Okay, so just to review the medications for patients with compression fractures secondary to METs, especially if they have spinal cord compression associated with that or you suspect that they have spinal cord compression, dexamethasone is one of the things that you want to consider. Right, so the original studies go back 20 years to about 1990. That was reported in the England Journal of Medicine. And the studies 20 years ago, the dose was 96 milligrams intravenously. And that was the treatment for a long time. Because of hyperglycemia, delirium, and infection risks, if there was less serious neurological deficits, the dose would lower to about 10 to 12 milligrams IV as a loading dose. So I think from the eMERGE viewpoint, if you've got a patient with spinal meds and any neurological findings, it's absolutely reasonable, safe, and prudent to give a 
dose of dexamethasone of about 10 milligrams. It also would be wise to discuss the issue with the, uh, with, with the consultant or the patient's oncologist. And certainly, it's still commonplace with massive neurological findings to give a larger dose originally. And then we talked about calcitonin for vertebral fractures, whether it's from osteoporosis or from METs. And we talked about IV pomidronate as a consideration for patients with compression fractures secondary to bony METs. Yeah, I, w- I would again stress uh, myocalcin for the less frequent metastatic lesions, but much more commonly osteoporotic lesions that, you know, the dowager hump, the little old lady who's ongoing pain may have to be admitted to hospital because just rehab and, and can't look after herself for activities of daily living. But if they're on the margin and for their own personal comfort, you want to keep narcotics as low as possible because of all the side effects in a geriatric patient. And the beauty of myocalcin is it's intranasal. There's literally no side effects to speak of, but can make or break patient recovery. And as you know, many osteoporotic fractures are asymptomatic. So if you, get, if you happen to see an X-ray here because you've... Uh, chest X-ray. A, a chest X-ray, or you happen you've got lumbar sacral spine because you have localized pain, you find osteoporosis or osteoporotic fractures, it would be very, very, very helpful. Tell a patient, please see your primary care doctor and get checked out for osteoporosis. You can save a lot of grief and a lot of suffering by recommending a bone density test done and a consultation by their primary care physician. And that also goes, by the way, uh, for college fractures and low-impact fractures mm-hmm. as well. Absolutely. But figures I've read suggest that in women over 70, 50%, one in two, will have osteoporotic fractures. In men over 70, it's as high as one in five. It's a big problem, and we can do a lot of good. Let's do a quick review of METs to the spine. First, known cancer plus new onset of back pain is spinal METs until proven otherwise. Remember that spinal METs are one of the most common causes of spinal cord compression, and they're often diagnosed too late. Because pretreatment neurologic status is the most important predictor of long-term outcome, we need to be on the lookout for this diagnosis and get on it early before it's too late. Remember, time is limbs. In patients suspected of spinal METs, first, get an x-ray and look for compression fractures, soft tissue changes, as well as blastic or lytic lesions. Consider ordering an ESR and CRP to help guide prognosis and management, as well as a calcium if the patient has any symptoms or signs consistent with hypercalcemia, especially polyuria. Give dexamethasone at least 10 mg IV as soon as you suspect METs to the spine in a patient with any neurologic symptoms and consider calcitonin as well as IV bisphosphonates in patients with compression fractures, METs to bone, or hypercalcemia, or any combination of the above. In terms of how soon a patient with spinal METs needs an MRI, those with symptoms and signs of cord compression need an MRI in the ED, and those with hard neuro findings without suspicion of cord compression need an MRI within about 24 hours while those without any neurological findings but have an x-ray consistent with METs should get an MRI within about three to seven days. Next, we're going to go on to a case that I had just a few months back. Let's move on to our our fourth case, 
My resident presented me a case of a 67-year-old woman who presented the emergency department with a 12-hour history of bilateral flank pain, low-grade fever, urinary frequency, and confusion, who had been sent in from her family doctor that morning. Her past medical history included diabetes, recurrent UTIs, CHF, and AFib she was taking warfarin for. On exam, she appeared unwell. She was febrile with a temp of 38.1. The rest of her vitals were normal. She had CVA tenderness as well as suprapubic tenderness. My resident suspected pyelonephritis, and I agreed with doing a septic workup, starting antibiotics, and giving a fluid bolus. But the urine came back about 30 minutes later, negative. So I went to examine the patient, and I found that she had mid and low back spinal process percussion tenderness, as well as bilateral lower extremity motor deficit. I declared that the patient likely has a spinal infection, probably a spinal epidural abscess with cord compression, and arranged an emergent MRI. The MRI report came back showing an L1 spinal epidural hematoma with cord compression. I went back to the exam of the patient, and she now, three hours after presentation, had flaccid paralysis in both legs. The patient was given octoplex and vitamin K and transferred to a neurosurgical center where she underwent evacuation of the epidural hematoma as well as a laminectomy. Unfortunately, the patient still remains paraplegic with an indwelling foley. At the beginning of this episode, I mentioned the three big vascular causes of back pain to think about. Triple A leak, retroperitoneal bleed, and spinal epidural bleed. Can you review for us, in general, just how these disasters typically present? So, uncommon, certainly spontaneous retroperitoneal bleed and spontaneous spinal hematoma. Huge red flag, anyone who is on Coumadin, and if you don't know what they're on, anyone in atrial fibrillation who you assume is on an anticoagulant. AAA, not rare. Uh, we've all been burned by it. The, the, the presentation can be uh, confusing, not as confusing as dissection, uh, but uh, certainly a AAA leak can be confusing. To me, the historical aspect of sudden pain with if you can elucidate the history of collapse, doesn't mean they lost consciousness, but they drop with pain. That is a vascular catastrophe. If they have a headache and collapse, you've bled. If they have chest pain and collapse, it's likely dissection or thoracic bleed, less commonly heart attack. And then abdominal back pain, sudden pain and collapse, you've bled. I mean, yes, you could have a thrombosis in your spinal canal. We see it, uh, thankfully, very rarely. But you worry about the bleed, and that's what you have to go for. The key points for abdominal aortic aneurysm rupture is a prodrome, of more often than not being elderly, uh, hypertensive history. Ironically, we see them more, and they're more difficult to diagnose in the obese patient, it seems, so the more... Uh, seemingly more frequent with them. They may have back pain radiating anywhere. Of course, if it's associated with chest pain, then you worry about a primary thoracic dissection breaking out in the abdominal retroperitoneal space. You may not feel anything pulsatile in the abdomen. 
and then uh, they may present with blood pressure anywhere, shock through hypertensive, depending on where you're catching them. Rarely there could be atherosclerotic plaque uh, flaking off to give you distal infarctions, be it leg, kidney, mesenteric, etc. Again, more commonly with dissection uh, than AAA, but these are often challenges. Record peritoneal bleeds are quite curious. The blood often can dissect anteriorly, and you can get tenderness in the left lower quadrant. You can get a mass in the inguinal area, mimicking a secondary carcinoma or a lymph gland or a hernia. You can get bruising in your loin. You can get bruising in the parambolectal area. You can get bruising in the groin area. You can get bruising in the scrotum, the labia, and the medial thigh. So it can present in many, many ways. You can get pressure on your femoral nerve as a consequence of that. Hypoesthesia or femoral neuropathies or slight pain on flexion is a typical feature of a retroperitoneal bleed. And of course, it can mimic diverticulitis. It can mimic appendicitis on the right side. It can mimic synovitis uh, of the hip. Therefore, the psoas side, pain on hip rotation, can also be present in retroperitoneal bleeds. But of course, the, the best hint is being on anticoagulant. You have to remember that the patients who take aspirin and clopidogrel, or aspirin and agents, bleed almost as much as people on warfarin. So aspirin alone might not be a major risk factor, but the combined dual antiplatelet therapy is a major risk factor for retroperitoneal bleeds and in alcoholics and in alcoholics who fall. So it's a major, major issue, actually, in those high-risk patients. When we talked about red flags for... Uh, Epidural abscess, red flags for back pain. Well, there are red flags for retroperitoneal bleeds. It's the alcoholic, the falling person, the person on antiplatelet agents, and the person on warfarin. Well, I happen to work in a hemophiliac center. So in addition to everything Walter says, uh, I mean, it's, it's almost like candy and vitamins. Everyone is either on an anticoagulant now being sustained uh, for their primary disease and or uh, antiplatelets, but we see the hemophiliac who uh, come in, uh, sometimes it's clear that they've had a spontaneous retroperitoneal bleed, but several instances over the last few years where they've uh, been elsewhere uh, presenting with hip pain and uh, had imaging of the hip and given even anti-inflammatories for the hip problem, and uh, they present a shocky, which is uh, pretty much a giveaway that it's not a hip problem. But when we go back, some of the imaging is in particular the CT scans because this patient can't walk in the initial presentation. Their hip is killing them. They have hip signs that Walter alluded to. And and we know, and maybe minor trauma, so the plain x-ray may be normal, but the conscientious primary doc does a CT and, and there's no pathology in the hip. You're going to send this patient out, right? It's the hip x-ray or CT is normal. But then when you look back, there it is, the retroperitoneal bleed on the top cuts of your CT of your hip. There it is, you know. So we talk about anticoagulation. We think iatrogenic all the time, but let's not forget the hemophilia. Yeah. I might add, we frequently see the patients, especially elderly women who fall, have a minor pelvic fracture of the superior and inferior pubic ramus. Before you send that patient home with a walker and home care, just remember these patients who have a small pelvic fracture can concurrently have a major pelvic bleed or retroperitoneal bleeding as well. 
it's worth adding to your list of pearls and, and amazing events to consider. And you want to at least consider in any patient, especially elderly patient, anticoagulants or with osteoporosis with a fractured pelvis that may be well enough to go home with assistance, just at least consider, examine the abdomen and the back and consider the possibility of retroperitoneal bleeding and so forth. It's not that rare, and we're all going to miss a case or two in our career at least. Wow, that was, that was packed with a serious number of pearls. All right. So we've talked about all the nasty, horrible, some not so uncommon, some quite uncommon causes of low back pain. Let's go back now and talk about the most common cause of back pain that we see all the time in the emergency room, and that's mechanical low back pain or lumbosacral sprain, whatever you want to call it. Let's say you've got a patient that you've ruled out all these other serious causes that we've talked about in the episode, and you've come to the conclusion that the patient has suffered from a lumbosacral sprain. You know, all too often I see these patients sent home on Tylenol 3s with little or no other treatment suggestions. Dr. Himmel, how do you treat these patients with lumbosacral sprain in the ED, and what instructions do you give them when you send them home? So first, I give them a general advice. Now, if you read the old literature, the advice might have been that in a week or two weeks, odds are you'll be fine. And I think that's increasingly not true. Not sure what the reasons are. Maybe we're less fit, more obese, who knows what it is. I tell patients with mechanical back pain, lumbosacral spine, that there's no evidence of a serious problem. Odds are you're going to have a lot of pain for two or three or four days, and it's slowly going to get better over the next two, three, four, five, six weeks. How about treatment? Well, there's been Cochrane reviews and there's been research, and I'm going to summarize it very quickly. Do anti-inflammatories help? Absolutely. NSAIDs are definitely helpful, but remember, as safe as you might think they are when you're 30 or 40 years of age, if you're diabetic or more than 50 or 60, they have been associated with ulcers, reflux, hypertension, renal insufficiency, constipation, upper GI bleeding, lower GI bleeding. And if you're on aspirin for atherosclerotic heart disease, and you give them an NSAID addition to that, their risk of bleeding can go up two, three, four-fold. So NSAIDs are effective, but they have problems. Now, is Tylenol as effective as NSAIDs? I cannot be dogmatic about this. Some studies say yes, and some studies say no. But Tylenol certainly is a reasonable starting point for people with mild to moderate pain. Do I give them NSAIDs or Tylenol alone? No. How about narcotics? Now, there's a big problem with narcotics. Are narcotics helpful? Absolutely. Do we worry about drug seekers and side effects? Absolutely. But frankly, if someone's in severe pain, I think most of us know Advil or Naprosyn or Tylenol is not going to be sufficient. So what are you going to use? Well, Tylenol 3 is an option. Now, we know one person in 10 has no cytochrome 2D6, so one person in 10, Tylenol with codeine is useless. We know one person in 10 has lost cytochrome 2D6. For them, Tylenol 3 is fantastic. And they get the rest in between. I ask patients, what have you taken for pain in the past? Have you used Tylenol 3? How effective is it? You've got to be very individualistic in your treatment. If the patient says, I've used it, it's helpful, it's reasonably effective, I will give them Tylenol number 3 or Tylenol number 2 and discuss the side effects. And I tell all of them to get on laxatives immediately. Whether you want to use lactulose, or whether you want to use Seneca, it's up to you. I held not to wait till they're constipated. I said, I want you to take these laxatives or all-brand cereal immediately 
and you've got to have one bowel movement every day or two. And the reason is, if you're going to day three or four and get badly constipated, they're really going to have back pain like you wouldn't believe. And I detest disimpacting patients. Do I like Percocet? Percocet, Oxyset, is a fantastic painkiller, but you've got to be very individualistic in its use. Some people can take two Percocet and feel great and have pain relief. Some will take one and be unconscious for two days. Some will take one pill and vomit their guts out. You've got to ask them about their experience with painkillers, and I actually consider keeping them in the apartment for an hour or two after I give them a Percocet to see what effect it's going to have. So narcotics have a role. I know all the problems, but I would never say I do not use narcotics for back pain. A lot of the recommendations say as briefly as possible, but the fact of it is they have a role and they're very effective. How about heat or cold? Traditionally, I told people that for acute muscle pain where you wanted pain control, you use ice and heat to encourage movement later. I was absolutely shocked and stunned when I viewed the Cochrane reviews, which said consistently, cold was of negligible value, heat was shown to be beneficial right off the bat. There's some benefit to heat. So I may have to consider changing what I've recommended. How about massage? I'm not sure what Swedish massage is, but according to Cochrane reviews, Swedish massage was shown to be effective in relieving pain. How about chiropractors? I do tell patients with acute sciatic pain when worried about neurological impingement to avoid chiropractic manipulation for the first week or two until they're reassessed by their doctor. Chiropractic manipulation has been shown to be as effective as aspirin or Tylenol, but not more effective. So I let them decide about that. So you've got to individualize, and some people find those things effective. Acupuncture, very questionable. We know quite a bit about bed rest, and uh, I'll tell you about a few studies I read. There was a study about 20 years ago in English Journal Medicine comparing seven days of bed rest to two days of bed rest. And they clearly showed that seven days of compulsory bed rest was way worse than two days of bed rest. So advising prolonged bed rest. And bed rest to them meant staying in bed other than to go to the bathroom. is harmful for back pain. On the other hand, there was a study in the U.S. Army which looked at recruits who had lower back pain, almost certainly lumbosacral strain, and they compared forced activity with rest. Forced activity impaired healing. So the advice should not be that I don't want to stay in bed or rest. The advice is rest as little as you possibly have to to get some relief. The first day is reasonable to lie down. Try to get up every couple hours and walk around and do a bit of walking. So rest as necessary, activity as tolerated, encourage increasing activity. But to be dogmatic and say you can't stay in bed I think it's unfair, unrealistic. People often require an hour or two of rest in the middle of the day to, to deal with their pain. And we do know people with fast joint problems and disc problems do get some relief. So brief rest as briefly as possible, being as active as possible. Excessive early exercise has been shown to be harmful. At halftime, we were chuckling about all three of us here have suffered significant low back pain with affecting our lifestyle some of us permanently and so it's so common but to get these people the essential knowledge of what's going on i i take the time and i don't take the time in a busy emergency department for a lot of things but i think it's very important to get these people to understand what's going on and to be very cautious with any aggravating movement especially if they're non-narcotics and they have to bear down for a bowel movement it's like you're just going to set yourself back weeks so that's the one spectrum. At the other spectrum is the patient who's got ongoing uh, recalcitrant, uh, recurrent 
lumbosacral pain where we're not worried about a red flag, where they're maxed out on every modality of therapy that Dr. Himmel alluded to. And what's bugging them a lot is their radicular pain. So they're not a surgical candidate at this point. And, and I find uh, going to a neuronal stabilizing agent for their radicular pain might tide them over uh, and get them through this crisis. So we're talking about gabapentin, pregabalin, trade name Lyrica, costly, some side effects, but you might even consider simple things like tricyclic antidepressants, small doses. You don't want to get them into an anticholinergic crisis, gradated increase in uh, nighttime nortriptyline can get them through this crisis. So there's something that I, I pull out in these circumstances. You know, after that, some people have muscle relaxants. I, I really looked around and I was quite surprised, actually. First of all, there's two kinds of muscle relaxants. There's the pretend ones known as Valium, Ativan, and Benzos. Then there's the so-called real muscle relaxants. And they go by names like Robaxin, Methacarbamol, or Robaxisol. A very famous old name called Soma, and a commonly used drug called Flexerol, or Slipobenzaprine. And, and the reviews shocked me. They're actually as effective as NSAIDs and Tylenol. But the reviews pointed out they are chock full of side effects. So some people will combine uh, Robaxin or Flexerol with an analgesic and an NSAID. Now, these have never been compared to each other and they've never been compared in combination. Individually, they're all effective. So my personal take has been, I tend to stay away from muscle relaxants because I'm worried about side effects. And I tend to like using, frankly, narcotics because I think they're effective. If you're an anti-narcotic doctor, you're gonna use more flexural. But remember, the side effects in those drugs are amazing. As far as radicular pain goes, there have been studies which clearly show that one of the few areas of lower back pain, mechanical lower back pain, where steroids are helpful is radicular pain, but not oral steroids. Oral steroids have no role in the treatment of mechanical back pain or radicular pain. Intramuscular steroids have been shown to be of no benefit in radicular or muscular pain. So there are some people who give them, uh, you know, prednisone decreasing doses, I am uh, dexamethasone, I am solumedrol, zero role in musculoskeletal back pain. One thing which has been shown to help for epidural steroids, and that's for a primary care provider to arrange at a later date. I think I want to say is the combination of a narcotic and a benzo is a ticket for a disaster. I would seriously consider suggesting that you never prescribe a benzo and a narcotic to a patient who's leaving eMERGE. I hate to be dogmatic, it's just a risky Thing to do. That being said, I have occasionally used a single benzo and emerge and then a narcotic because I couldn't get the person home and they were screaming in pain. But to give someone a prescription for a benzo and a narcotic is a, is a trigger for impending danger. I think Dr. Himmel's alluding to habituation and subsequent abuse and talked earlier of trying to max out simple medicines like anti-inflammatories and Tylenol being so benign and possibly effective. So I, I tend to think twice about ordering Tylenol-3 in a patient who needs more than simple analgesic, and I go to Tylenol 
or acetaminophen with codeine, 8 milligrams, so-called Tylenol number 1 in Canada. It's over-the-counter. It's dirt cheap. It'll give you the same codeine. Three of the pills will give you the same amount of codeine as one Tylenol 3, but it's going to give you three times the amount of Tylenol. So, again, thinking simplistically and seeing so much habituation where I work, and, and I ask these people, how did you get there? And like, where did you start? And some may, may confess to being teenagers and experimenting with drugs. But many of them are good citizens who were placed on heavy narcotics for whatever indication and could not get off them. And I'm very cognizant of that. And to try and prevent that in, in anyone who presents, then I think twice about maybe, maybe simple Tylenol with eight milligrams of codeine might be enough to hold them without going on to the big guns. Might. If I can give a, a very different view on that, and this is a tough, tough spot. To adhere to one approach and never veer off that approach is probably not accurate for all patients. There are some patients who probably do need a Percocet or Thalaudin. So what do you do in emerge if you're going to give someone a narcotic like that? Well, if you're the kind of doctor who never does it, I'll respect your decision. I don't blog that group. I certainly have given patients Percocet and Thalaudin after coming to believe they have severe pain, after becoming convinced that other stuff isn't going to work, and I think they need something for a couple of days. I'm reasonably comfortable giving a brief course. What's a brief course? Two or three days. And I can tell you from reviewing a lot of complaints to CNP by patients that it's not unreasonable in my opinion. This is purely opinion we're approaching right now to give a very brief course of two or three days of a strong narcotic until they see their own doctor. Now, I know what you're all going to say. I haven't got a doctor and I don't know how to deal with those problems. Let me tell you what is risky. Giving someone a two, three, four-week supply of a potent narcotic, I don't think it's a wise idea. One other thing to say. Sending home somebody who needs a wheelchair to get through their car is a very difficult thing to do. And it's difficult for three reasons. Uh, number one, you could be missing a seriously ill person. And number two, they could injure themselves on the way home. And number three, how are they going to function at home? Early on, you mentioned the trouble with the back pain was it's repetitive, it could be boring. And I said, no, my problem with back pain is it terrifies me. If I send somebody home in a wheelchair, I have to make sure they've got tremendous support systems, and most of these patients do not. Now, of course, the thought of calling internal medicine or orthopedics about a patient with back pain gives me an equal amount of terror and uh, discomfort. But as I'm getting older and more cautious in many ways, if I have patients who need a wheelchair to get home, they can't function at home, they have social problems. Generally speaking, I'm becoming more aggressive about referring them to medicine or orthopedics. I've got to be reasonably sure they can function at home and get to the bathroom and get medications and cope. But before I refer them to medicine, I have examined the reflexes, examined their strength, examined their sensation, examined their rectum, and assured myself there's no retention. So if I'm going to refer them to medicine, I've done all that, plus the social history, and I say, this patient has no retention, no significant neurological findings, no red flags, I'm not worried about catechonic syndrome, I'm not worried about metastatic disease, but they cannot walk, they have no social supports, and they cannot function at home. So Walter, I think you're uh, demonstrating being a patient advocate. This was a term that we didn't hear much about early in our career, but as you say, as you're get, we are getting older and wiser with the 
aging population that we experience. We can relate to their uh, challenges, and if you have to, you blow the door down and you get this patient cared for properly. Society really respects emergency physicians. Last week, the England Journal of Medicine published an article about emergency medical care. And the article said that the emergency department is becoming the social net. It's becoming the increasingly the area for primary care, particularly those who haven't got physicians, even those who do. And it's becoming a major area for rapid investigations and diagnosis. We have a remarkable job that's incredibly fascinating. And I'm starting to recognize that as far as society is concerned, when the patient comes to the hospital, the emergency doctor can't say, well, I referred them to medicine or surgery. Society expects the emergency doctor to do all the diagnosing and so forth. Don't think for one second, because you're first someone to medicine, or you call the neurosurgeon over the phone, that your responsibility has ended. So it's a mixed bag, right? It's you have increasing respect, increasing responsibility, increasing fascination, uh, but increasing responsibility, and, and that's sort of good and bad. It's sort of good, but we have a lot of responsibility, and these programs, uh, I, I think, are, are essential. And also remember, most MRIs you get, most people you think have quantum syndrome, most patients you think have epidural abscesses do not. You are going to have a negative investigation again and again and again. And many patients you refer, you're going to get a verbal report back saying this patient doesn't have Cotacata syndrome, this patient hasn't got this and hasn't got that. So I say two things. Number one, don't feel bad about it. You're going to have lots of negatives. There are approximately two to 3,000, maybe 4,000 aortic dissections in North America per year. You're going to have tons of negatives. Believe me, everyone that's missed is in the newspapers for years. There's only approximately 15 to 20,000 retro triple A's per year. That's not very many. Our job is to look for the dangerous things and not to miss them. As a consequence of that, we'll have many false negatives. Don't get ejected and don't get depressed about it and don't give up. You've got to have lots of false negatives when it comes to these diseases. If you don't do these investigations and if you don't continue to pursue it, you'll miss the opportunity to diagnose life-threatening and life-changing conditions. You must be prepared to accept negative results. Wow, I just love these guys. They just put things so eloquently. At this point, I'd like to do a review of the entire episode, and the way I want to present it is in the rule of fives. This isn't the rule of nines like in Burns, the rule of fives for low back pain. First, there are five important diagnoses to consider in the patient who presents with low back pain. Massive central disc herniation, infection like spinal epidural abscess, cancer causing spinal cord compression, a bleed causing spinal cord compression, or another bleed like AAA, and lastly, fracture. So those are the five important diagnoses to consider. Massive central disc herniation, infection, cancer, bleed, and fracture. Next, there's five key questions to ask. First, any bowel or bladder symptoms. Second, is this patient immunodeficient in any way? Third, is there a history or symptoms of cancer? Fourth, has there been any recent spinal intervention? And lastly, does the patient have any kind of coagulopathy? So those are the questions to ask. What about the physical exam? There's five physical exam maneuvers that you need to consider in the patient with low back pain. First, 
percuss the spinous processes to see if there's true tenderness there. Second, test for saddle anesthesia. Third, do a rectal examination looking for tone and sensation in those patients that we talked about. Fourth, make sure you specifically look for fever. And fifth, check for bilateral, progressive, or multi-level neurologic deficit in the lower extremities. Moving on with the rule of five, there are five initial tests to consider in the ED for patients who present with low back pain. Most importantly, a post-void residual in any patient you suspect that might have urinary retention. Second, an ESR and or a CRP. Third, an x-ray of the spine. Fourth, an ED bedside ultrasound looking for AAA. And lastly, consider doing a serum calcium in those patients with spinal mets and the right clinical picture. Be extra cautious of patients who return to the ED a second or third time with back pain. Don't just assume that they're drug seekers. If you're thinking of renal colic, force yourself to think about AAA or retroperitoneal bleed. If you're thinking pyelonephritis, force yourself to think about spinal epidural abscess or osteomyelitis. Patients with known cancer and a new onset of back pain have spinal mets until proven otherwise. The finding of a non-traumatic vertebral compression fracture should prompt the search for cancer and for infection. Know when you need an emergent MRI. Remember that CT doesn't tell you anything about spinal cord integrity, so if you suspect Cotoquinus syndrome or spinal cord compression, get an MRI fast. Lastly, know when to give IV steroids. The evidence is best for patients with METs to the spine and a neurodeficit. Before we wrap up this episode, I just want to throw at you a few of Dr. Himmel's cases that he's just going to sort of riddle off just to give you an idea of the breadth of disease in low back pain and to throw at you a few more pearls. Enjoy. A young man about 30 years of age who slipped down four steps the day prior to seeing me. He complained of severe back pain. He'd gone to a local hospital shortly after slipping down his four steps. I was seen there, had some x-rays, and was told basically, x-rays are normal, you can go home. Now, of course, he was barely able to walk, he had weakness in his legs, and he had to be carried home by his buddies. He was home for 24 hours, and he came to my hospital the next day, 24 hours after his fall, saying the following, I slipped down three steps, I've got severe back pain, I've got numbness on my legs, I can barely walk, and I can barely pee. I examined this person. He was alert, lying in bed, normal speech, normal vital signs. His abdomen felt uh, quite full, almost as if there was a maxillary abdomen, a bit like a full bladder. I turned him on his side, and he was tender in the midline over T12 to L4. He had decreased sensation in the area supplied by T11 to L3, lower abdomen, upper thigh, inner thigh. He had some numbness around the paraanal area, which I just couldn't believe, but he did. And he had weakness of hip flexion and hip extension. Amazingly, his reflexes were normal. His rectal tone was normal. And after I passed a Foley, he had about 300 cc's of urine. So here I have a guy who has great difficulty walking, severe back pain, midline tenderness, urinary retention, patchy numbness in a, in a saddle area and perianal area, but normal rectal sphincter and urinary retention. So my thinking was, this guy